namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sankhang namasami So, good afternoon to everyone. This is the second of the uh, Sunday afternoon talks of this uh, Rains Retreat 2022. So very glad to be able to have these back in person once again uh, after the break of the last couple of years. So the theme for this afternoon is nice guys finish last, or do they? That's the... Uh, the, the theme for today, nice guys finish last, or do they? And so this is, uh, uh, say, uh, the th area of competition and fairness and, uh, uh, say, cheating, unscrupulous behavior and uh, selfishness and generosity and virtue, this whole kind of area, uh, how uh, we can look at that, say, uh, aspect of our lives and, and see how those things work. Uh, in uh, the worldly perspective, the, in the world of, of, of competition, and then and in the, the, uh, the competitive world, the business world, and uh, even in family life, and uh, occasionally even in monastic life, <laughs> there can be the sense of competitiveness, competitiveness and yeah, I, want to, uh, I want to win, uh, I've got to to uh, achieve and get and, and have at all costs. And uh, many years ago, uh, I, f I found an advertisement in a, a magazine or a newspaper, and I was so shocked by it, I actually sort of tore it out and, and kept it. Um, this was a number of years ago in a bit more of the, the kind of uh, uh, overtly, um, say, <laughs> dis destructively greedy uh, period of, of Western society. But it was, it was so startling, so shocking to me that uh, I, uh, I tore it out and kept it out. I don't know where it is now, but um, the image in the, the advertisement, and some of you might remember this possibly, it was a, of a, a face sort of, of somebody sort of squashed in, into the ground with their glasses broken and a footprint, like a boot print across their face. So they're kind of squashed down into the ground and it's a, a, a boot has landed on their face and has squashed their head, broken their glasses, and it's like a shocking image, and the uh, and it was an advertisement for some kind of financial services company, and the caption was "Shame about the meek and the world they will not inherit." So uh, some of you might uh, uh, recognize some of the language. So in the Beatitudes, in one of the passages of the New Testament of the Bible, Jesus says, "You know, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth." Uh, so the meek being people who are gentle, people who are kind, people who are, uh, say, unselfish and thoughtful. And so this advertisement was, con it was directly going against that. So it's like, uh, you know, if you are meek, if you are gentle, if you are kind, if you are honest, if you are fair, you, know, you will be crushed. And the image is quite a shocking image of a face squashed by a boot with her glasses broken and you know, pressed into the gutter. And I was so startled, like, this is actually something, you know, someone's designed this advertisement and made this into an advertisement. <laughs> this is supposed to be encouraging you to 
invest in their company. But it was, but uh, uh, interestingly enough, um, I kind of guess goes along with the theme for this afternoon is that, uh, as I understand it, a couple of years after that advertisement was, was created, that company folded. <laughs> they, didn't, uh, they didn't survive, so that was, uh, in a way, a message so, along with the theme for today. So, uh, shame about the meek and the world they will not inherit. So that if you're gentle, if you're kind, if you're fair, uh, if you are, uh, uh, if you are unselfish, you know you, you will f you will fail, you will be beaten, you you will be crushed. That's the the kind of message. Uh, also, around that same time, this sort of uh, in the the kind of um, uh, corporate the uh, 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 era of of um, you know, rampant capitalism. There was a a film called Wall Street. And the, uh, the central character of this film, I think it was played by Michael Douglas in, in, the, the, in the film originally. Uh, uh, the film was called Wall Street, and the, the name of the lead character was Gordon Gecko. I think with a deliberately reptilian name. <laughs> Gecko spelled G-E-K-K-O, Gordon Gecko. And one of the most famous quotations from that film was, Greed is good. And that apparently, I didn't see the film, but apparently at a certain point he is making the 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 uh, uh, the, uh, the statement. But but greed is good. You know, this is what helps to drive the capitalistic urge. This is you know, greed is good. This is this is what we we live on. And um, so that uh, that uh, area of competitiveness and a sense of um, me winning, me succeeding, um, uh, me uh, achieving it at all costs, you know, irrespective of how honest it might be or how kind or uh, that uh, in our lives, probably the people who come along to listen to a Dhamma talk on a Sunday afternoon are not <laughs> likely to be the people who are most driven by those kind of impulses, but they're around us. They're in the, in the workplace, in the world around us, in the... In our in our communities, in our in our families, and so that uh, it's a, it's good to consider that, that energy in the human world and to, how to to work with that that competitiveness and how that meshes with Buddhist principles. So um, that uh, uh, um, that kind of uh, interface uh, and how. Uh, say the the urge to succeed or to to to, to win, you know, how does that fit together with the with Buddhist principles, Buddhist ideals? Uh, when people come across Buddhist teachings, uh, some of us have sort of been uh, introduced to Buddhism when we were already grown up. Others have grown up in in Buddhist societies and have been around Buddhist principles ever since early childhood. But it can easily come across, whether it's uh, something we've grown up with or something that we've come across uh, later in life, that uh, we can get the sense that uh, desire is the cause of suffering. You know, the, uh, that's in, in the Four Noble Truths, that's the second noble truth. Desire is the cause of dukkha, uh, there, and, and therefore desire is to be let go of. So we make the assumption that every kind of desire is bad and wrong, and any kind of, of wishing or any kind of directing of our life uh, uh, any kind of choosing is somehow uh, against Dhamma principles. It's uh, what they would say, anathema to Dhamma. It goes against Dhamma. And it's, it's very often uh, that um, 
people have that impression. Uh, you know, when, uh, say, leading a retreat or giving a Dhamma talk, people will say, uh, but surely, Ajahn, you know, Buddhists aren't supposed to have any desires. Or maybe uh, sometimes people would quote that uh, they've, uh, when they've been um, negotiating with uh, uh, someone that they work with in the office, like, you know, I really like the desk by the window. And they say, well, you're, not, you're a Buddhist. You're not supposed to have any desires. You know, I'll, I'll take the desk by the window. <laughs> Yeah, you Buddhists don't have any desires. You know, I'll get I'll get the nice corner, um, and so that uh, and people would come to me and say, Ajahn, I just had this this uh, interaction at the office, and <laughs> and so uh, uh, that didn't seem quite right. You know, can you can you uh, elucidate that? So uh, uh, I feel it's good to 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 look at this area, and uh, again, some of some of us might be familiar with how this works, and others not, because. Uh, it, there can be a misunderstanding uh, of what we mean uh, by the word desire or the different nuances, the different tones that the word desire can have. Uh, so in, uh, in, in the Buddha's teachings, the desire that's the cause of suffering, that is the troublemaker, is tanha, T-A-N-H-A, tanha. Uh, and that literally means thirst. And it's probably a, a, better to translate it as craving, um, because that in English uh, that has a bit more of a sense of agitated self self centeredness, self obsession. Um, so tanha is indeed the cause of dukkha, and pretty much every single place uh, in the Pali Canon where the word tanha is used, it's it's got that kind of negative tone, that pejorative tone. That yeah, this is the 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 energy or the attitude of mind that that causes suffering, causes discord and, and dissatisfaction. That's the, the, the root problem. Uh, but it's not the only uh, word that can be translated as desire because uh, uh, there's a, another word, chanda, C-H-A-N-D-A, chanda, uh, which also can va very validly be translated as desire and it has a very different range of meanings. It can mean sense desire, karma chanda, like the desire for sense pleasure and to desire to see beautiful things, to, to taste beautiful flavors, to hear beautiful sounds, and to feel beautiful uh, sensations, and so on. It can, it can mean that, chanda. But also it can, it can be used for dhamma chanda, the desire for, for dhamma, the desire for reality. Um, and uh, it, it can have extremely wholesome qualities, or, or neutral qualities, just like the, you know, the desire to, to take the next breath. It's a, it's a completely neutral, it's not, uh, it's not wholesome or unwholesome, it's completely functional. So uh, that quality of chanda uh, is mentioned in, in, many, in, in many different areas or different contexts, but principally it comes in a collection of uh, qualities called the four bases of success, the four idipada. And it, in line with today's theme, it's, it's very, very relevant because it's not the case that you know, if you're a Buddhist, you shouldn't want anything or you shouldn't be aiming to succeed or, or that uh, you become some, somehow every kind of desire is wrong, so we're trying to turn ourselves into some sort of nullified entity that just is and doesn't, you know, doesn't do or engage. That's a, a really a wrong understanding of the, the principles, um, but rather the... The quality of chanda uh, also means uh, interest or enthusiasm, zeal. It's the, ab the ability of the mind to uh, set a direction and to, to uh, give value, give, give importance 
to some, uh, some experience. So chanda is a necessary condition. In order for a, for, the, for a being to be enlightened, in order for the Buddha to be enlightened, he needed chanda. He needed to be interested in sp spiritual development. There needed to be that enthusiasm, that sense of engagement, that zeal uh, that had to be there. So it's a, uh, chanda is a necessary condition, a sine qua non of any, anything wholesome and beneficial and, and beautiful to be brought into our lives. So far from being a cause of suffering, it's actually the, the cause of great benefit and, and blessings in our life. So just to, to go uh, through those other aspects of the four idipada, as, because these are useful to understand. So the first three work together. So there's chanda is the first one, is interest or enthusiasm, desire, zeal. Uh, the second one is virya, which is energy, uh, so that energetic engagement, doing. And then the third one is chitta, which in this respect means thinking things through. So whether you want to, to realize full and complete enlightenment, whether you want to bake a cake, whether you want to, to go through the door to, have a, uh, to uh, you know, have a breath of fresh air, or whether you want to rob, rob a bank, uh, or, or, or to, um, to, to beat the other person at, at any cost, that there needs to be the interest in that. Uh, there needs to be, so whether it's wholesome, neutral, or unwholesome, uh, it, uh, it works in the same way. There needs to be the interest, there needs to be the, uh, the energetic application, and there needs to be thinking it through. Okay, if I want to bake a cake, um, what, what ingredients do I need? Uh, if, I want to, if, I want to, if I want to bake a cake, I've got to get off my chair and <laughs> go to the kitchen and start cooking, because if I don't actually get up and move and start doing things, the cake is not going to bake itself. So those three um, work together. It has to be the interest, the um, thinking things through, uh, and energetic engagement. Um, uh, the interest to do it, the activation of doing it, and then thinking through, okay, how am I going to do it? And what's the best way for this, this goal to be achieved? Again, either wholesome, unwholesome, or, or neutral. And then the fourth one of, the, of these uh, bases of success is, uh, is the uh, quality of uh, vimangsa. And vimangsa is reviewing. So it's looking back, okay, did the cake get baked? Uh, did, uh, did I manage to get out of the building to stretch my legs and have a breath of fresh air? Did I manage to rob the bank successfully? Or did I, uh, did I get caught in the act? You know, what, was, what was the result? How did it work? Again, whether it's uh, wholesome, neutral, or, or unwholesome. So uh, the, these four bases of success are very much a part of spiritual training and uh, spiritual life. And that um, we, uh, when those are understood, then you can recognize we don't need to be afraid of desiring, <laughs> of giving a direction to our life, of making choices and putting energy into things. The work that we do, looking after our families, you know, running a monastery or putting up buildings or, or uh, training the mind in, in meditation, we need the, these four idipada, the four bases of success. And the mind is working uh, towards succeeding at a goal. And so it's important to understand when we talk about desire being the cause of suffering that uh, we can make choices, give direction, act on those, uh, those, those choices uh, without there being any kind of dukkha, any kind of suffering, any dissatisfaction, any kind of negative result that comes from that. And so that's a, 
it's probably a theme <laughs> worth a, a, of a whole uh, Sunday afternoon talk, if not a whole a retreat in and of itself. But I feel it's, it's an area where, where things are misunderstood. So when uh, this uh, subject was suggested, one of the many, many titles that were suggested for these Sunday talks, I thought, oh, that's a good one. That's the opportunity to talk about the, the idipada and the difference between craving and uh, between tanha and chanda, between craving and desiring. So that uh, uh, when we, we see things in this way, we can aim towards success, aim towards putting energy and looking into to wholesome goals and the work that we do, looking after our family, looking after our monastery, taking care of our, our friends, our, our children, our parents, uh, and uh, looking after responsibilities. Um, and we can aim to succeed. We can aim to be doing a good job. <laughs> and uh, we shouldn't be afraid of that or, or feel that somehow obstructive or difficult. That uh, our spiritual practice is that kind of a training uh, that we, we, we follow, uh, wishing for success. We're aiming to, we're not just, when we sit down to meditate, it's not just a sort of random act of, okay, plunk the body into a sitting posture and just see what happens. <laughs> it's the, no, there's a direction, there's, a, there's work that's being done. It's also interesting, I was having a conversation with one of the Anagarikas uh, yesterday. And uh, that the, the word ascetic or asceticism in terms of, uh, you know, like say, ascetic practice or the Dutanga practices that we have, asceticism, a kind of spiritual training through austerity, it comes from the Greek word askesis, which is to do with, with athletic training. So if you're an athlete uh, and you want to win a race, you want to do well in the race, you've got to train. You can't just hope for the best. And, and think, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll sign up for the race and then see what happens. It's like, well, you can. But if, if you want to do well, if you want to use your abilities to their fullest extent, you need to train. You need to get out there and, and run. You need to, or, or whatever it is, the sport that you're doing, you need to train so that that, um, uh, uh, to use the capacity that you have to the fullest extent, we, we need that. And so that in, in this respect, um, that ascesis uh, is a spiritual training. You know, if we want to do the best we can with our human condition, with our ability to see and hear and smell and taste and touch, our ability to, to train the mind, to focus the mind, to understand uh, how the world works, it takes work, it takes effort. But just like an athlete uh, can, can train and work really, really hard to do the best they can with the capacities that they have without that being negative or without being kind of um, a cheat or without that being, uh, say, um, destructive in any way. Um, similarly, we can work with our, our, our life. We can work with our mind. We can work hard to, to train this, uh, uh, this, this life in a, a skillful way. Also, going back to the title for this afternoon, yeah, Nice Guys Finish Last, when I was contemplating this theme, I thought, well, what's a good example? I thought, well, Usain Bolt, he seems to be a really, really nice guy. And he almost, well, I think he's pretty much retired now. But when he was running, he used to win a lot. <laughs> Several world records are still standing in his name. He's a, a really nice guy, and he didn't finish last, but he trained. Uh, he, was, uh, he, uh, he wasn't just running on, no pun intended, wishful thinking. Yeah, he, uh, he trained vigorously to do the best he could, but was, uh, wasn't uh, cheating or wasn't... Uh, kind of uh, uh, self-obsessed or malicious, but was, had a, a skillful attitude. 
So that was a, a bit of a, an aside on the difference between craving and desiring, tanha and chanda. And I, 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 uh, after the, the talk later on this afternoon, there's a time for questions. So if people have things you want to ask, then uh, please, uh, uh, if that, things around that need clarifying. If you're interested in the suttas, there's a particular dialogue between Venerable Ananda and a Brahmin called Unaba. And when uh, it it's illustrates this, it's in um, uh, the connected discourses about the four idipada, the four bases of success, and it's sutta number 15, I think. It's, it's uh, section 51, sutta 15, if I remember correctly, <laughs> if I've done my homework. <laughs> so, uh, and in, in that, uh, that dialogue between Unaba and Venerable Ananda, yeah, Unaba asks him, so, um, what is the essence of, of the Buddha's teaching? What is the, 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 the core principle of, uh, of your, your spiritual practice? And Venerable Ananda says, uh, the, the core practice is letting go of desire. And then Unaba says, but if that's sort of, how can that be the, the core of what you're doing? Because you, you have to desire to let go of desire. So that's, that's circular. That's a that's interminable. That's a, a circular argument. That's interminable. How can that possibly work? How can you get to? How can you use desire to get to the end of desire? It doesn't work. And then Venerable Ananda gives this really good example. He says uh, so, um, and he goes through the idipada in in terms of um, Unaba visiting the park. He said so. Earlier today, did you have the thought I would like to visit the Gositarama, Gosita's park in Kosumbi? Yes, I did. So then, did you act upon that thought? Did you say, you know, get up and, and start coming here? He said, yes, I did. Did you think about what's the best way to get to the Gositarama? I said, yes, I did. So there's Chanda, Virya, and Jitta. And then, having arrived, arrived at the Gositarama, then uh, were you aware, I have arrived at, the, at Gosita's park, at the Gositarama? He said, yes, I have. He said, so, then you having arrived here, what's happened to that desire? That, uh, that desire for you to get here. And, uh, and he said, well, it, it's, it's served its purpose and it, the, it's, it's done what it needed to do and there's, there's no further result. And Anna said, exactly. <laughs> so we can, there's a way that we can follow desire and it has no negative consequences. Uh, I'm ex explaining it very briefly, but again, you can look that up uh, in the dialogue between Venerable Ananda and Unaba in the connected discourses, if you wish. So, the, uh, in terms of competition and, and say, uh, whether it's in the office, in the family, in the monastery, or in the workplace, uh, in the commercial world, or on the sports field, then uh, the, the issue is not uh, about not, uh, not desiring or not trying to do the best we can with our work, with our, 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 our projects, or our, uh, uh, our relationships, but rather, it's the attitude that we have towards that. So, yes, it's good to aim for success, I would say. <laughs> aim to, to use the capacities that we have in a skillful way uh, and to, to aim for the best result for ourselves and for others. But it's the, the attitude that makes a difference. If it's all about me succeeding, me coming out on top, me um, getting the result that I want, irrespective of what anybody else wishes and, and the impact it has on others, whether it's honest, whether it's kind, whether it's respectful or, or not, then that's where things make a difference. If it's based on selfishness and greed, then there's going to be a negative result. That's of, 
it's drifted into the tanha zone, the craving zone, the self-centered craving zone. Uh, if it's within the chanda and the, 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 the wholesome uh, aspects of, of chanda, then there's nothing to be concerned about. So what causes the mind to go into that tanha zone? Well, how does that drift happen? Uh, and uh, uh, usually what is happening for most of us is that what I, I, would, I usually refer to, and last week and there was one of the questions I was responding and talking about this, what I call the reptile brain. So uh, I, many years ago I did a degree in physiology and have a very sketchy understanding of the, the anatomy of the brain. But uh, a lot of the, the most sort of basic forces in our life are driven by the, the, the most ancient, uh, so evolutionary, evolutionarily ancient part of our brain, like in the very sort of core area of the brain. And this is the, uh, the area of our brain that drives uh, sexual desire, um, the, de the desire for food, uh, the desire for territory, protecting your territory, competing against others for resources, uh, all of that, uh, that area, the, this is what I would call the, the reptile brain. And if there's a few neuroanatomists here, please excuse me if this is a ske sketchy and inaccurate representation, but I think it's, it's a good enough thumbnail sketch of how the brain works. So these are kind of non-conceptual, powerful instinct instinctual forces. Food, sex, territory, power, uh, co uh, competition, um, and... Uh, Survival, really, on a physical level, and so these are these were functioning in our kind of evolutionary ancestry long before we had language and words and 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 laws and rules and precepts. And <laughs> uh, in the in the animal realm, these forces are functioning very powerfully. And uh, so uh, the the, um, the reptile brain, this very ancient part of our brain, is what dominates a lot of our actions in terms of competing with each other, looking out for you know, me first, um, you know, my happiness is much more important than your happiness, <laughs> these kind of uh, uh, forces in our lives. And so it's when the reptile brain uh, takes over and, dry and, and is sort of the dominant presence in our lives, that's where we drift into the, the tanha zone and we are, uh, we are uh, guided by those forces. The thinking mind can then make good excuses about why my happiness is more important than your happiness. <laughs> it's like a kind of legal department. Kind of the, 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 lawyer, the lawyers come up and make a good, a good excuse why I'm, I am more important than you. My comfort and my happiness is much more important than yours, much more real. But um, uh, So the, the thinking mind can get employed by the reptile mind, I would say. <laughs> But the driving forces are me first. Um, no, I want that. This is my patch. Get off. Um, you know, that person's attractive. I want to be close to them. Or that person's irritating. I want to w get rid of them, wipe them out. Uh, that, uh, I'm hungry. That, that's, <laughs> I want to eat that, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to have it. So uh, even in the monastery, uh, just because we, we shave our heads and wear robes and take lots of precepts, it doesn't mean that the reptile brain is switched off. You can still be, uh, unfortunately, I would <laughs> acknowledge, you can still be competitive uh, as a monastic. You know, I found in my early years I was very, very vigorously trying to be the, sort of the, the champion monk and to, to sit longer. You, know, you can kind of, you have different 
materials that you use rather than having more money. It's like how, how many hours can you spend on the cushion? It's like, oh, I did eight, you know, 14 hours today. Yes. You know, I you know, hope everyone saw how long I've been sitting there, you know. And uh, it just casually mentioned how many hours you're putting in a day these days or, or how many ascetic practices you're doing. So that, uh, and I was interestingly talking with a, a Christian monk saying how that um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the people who used to, to be very competitive as, uh, as lay people, they, they would kind of they, they would, uh, win, all, they would uh, win all the fights they got into or they would drink everybody under the table. He said that the, the monks who used to be uh, very uh, you know, aggressive and would, would uh, get into fist fights with everyone and, and want to win all their fist fights, they now want to win all the, the ascetic fights. So they used to drink everyone under the table. Now they fast everyone under the table. So, oh, something's go. You find in all religious traditions, it's uh, similar energies. So that that competitiveness uh, can easily, and and that sense of uh, the, the being dominated by the reptile brain, even if it's dressed up in sort of polite forms, <laughs> in the office or in wearing business suits and such like, or in the uh, in the houses of parliament, you know the the. the uh, I'm not very familiar with the, with the political process, but I know that in the Houses of Parliament, they always have to refer to each other as, you know, the, the, the Honourable Member for West Byfleet. You know, the Honourable Member for West Byfleet is a total idiot, you know. Like, but they're still called the Honourable Member for, you know, they're still honourable. Or, or in letters, you know, I remain, you know, that you can write a whole letter being incredibly rude to someone and say, you know, I remain respectfully yours or... Your faith, you know, your, I, I remain your obedient servant after you've said, you know, you're a total fool, you're an idiot, you're, you're uh, c- completely incompetent at your job, I remain your obedient servant, X, Y, Z. So that we, we dress things up in polite forms, but the driving forces can easily still be that, that reptile brain. So uh, in terms of, of, you know, nice guys finish last, or do they... An element of that, uh, of what actually benefits us, is sila. And like last week, I was mentioning how the precepts are a way of ring fencing the reptile brain. And for those of you who were along last week, I was using using the analogy of Jurassic Park and the, the film Jurassic Park, and uh, where they have this they've re- reconstituted these you know, dinosaurs and large, large reptiles <laughs> from D- their DNA. And they're kept in this park with a very big fence, got an electrified fence to keep, uh, keep the reptiles in. And then, uh, of course, why it's a, a movie is you know, something, something happens and the fence comes down and then the, uh, the dinosaurs get out. Um, so this, uh, the five precepts are, are a way that we ring fence the reptiles of our own mind, that we take these principles. Yes, we might feel aggression towards others, but we take the precepts. I undertake the, the precepts to not take the life of any other living being. We might have aggressive or destructive impulses, but we take the precept to not kill. We might have acquisitive impulses. We want to get things, but we are, take the precept to be respectful of other people's property. I'll not take anything that isn't given. So we're, we might say, yeah, well, I want that. Well, that's, you know, I'll have that one. So, well, that's a feeling. That's the reptile brain talking. But the precepts then say, okay, there's a fence there that says, well, yeah, that might be attractive. That might be interesting to have that, but uh, that belongs to someone else. That's not yours. It's not, that hasn't got your name on it, therefore 
you know, leave it alone, or with sexual desire, wanting to go against the, the relationships, the, your commitments in terms of relationship, or just being attracted to someone that you happen to, to see, that, you know, well, that's an attractive person, and they, well, you know, but you're married to someone else, or you're a monk, or you're a nun, you know. <laughs> so therefore, you have uh, these, uh, uh, say, uh, reminders, these principles that help to, say, uh, protect the mind from acting easily on those reptilian impulses. So ring fencing the, the reptile brain is what the, the, the five precepts are for. And, uh, and so when we, we, are, we apply the precepts, also one of the things uh, that I like to point out is when we think of the precepts, we can't think, oh, it's just a big fence to sort of stop all the things I want to do. But it's also, it's a way of reminding us that uh, along with the reptile brain, we have the <laughs> We have the, the, the higher mind, we have the principles of the Brahma-viharas, of loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity. We have the qualities of mindfulness and wisdom. That's also in, in the other, I would say, uh, informed and, and energized and activated by the more well-developed and, uh, and the, the more evolutionarily refined parts of the brain and the, the spiritual capacities that we have. So having the precepts uh, it helps us to stop acting in a reactive way and to remind us of, well, actually, I don't really need that. It's attractive, but I don't really have to have it. Yes, that's beautiful, but I don't need to, to own it or get close to it. Or that's, that's irritating, but I don't need to hate it or fight against it. So we're drawing upon our own love of the good, our own higher principles. And there's a, a wonderful, uh, uh, rarely used English word, synderesis, which means the love of the good. In the Pali language, the word gunadhamma, G-U-N-A-D-H-M-M-A, D-H-A-M-M-A, gunadhamma, is a similar thing. It's, it's the, the quality of virtue itself, the love of the good. So the, the, the precepts, like uh, to refrain from killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, uh, lying and intoxicants, they're the sikapada, they're the, 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 kind of the rules that spell out you know, the areas or the, kind of the, the, the fabric of the fence. <laughs> but the, um, uh, the, this quality of the gunadhamma, the quality of virtue itself, is that in the heart that's not interested in causing hurt to other beings, that is respectful of the lives of other beings, respectful of relationships, respectful of property, that, that loves the good. And so uh, sila is not just the rules about don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. But it's also uh, its root, its, its real heart, is that synderesis, that love of the good, that, that genuine quality of virtue of the heart. So uh, I think when we, we talk about sila, it's not just the, the don't, don't do this, don't do that. But it's important to recognize that um, it's the, uh, in a sense, the disposition, the inclination of your own pure heart that is, uh, you're being encouraged to draw upon that. So uh, when, we, uh, when we are a nice guy, <laughs> yeah, using the, the word guy, sort of non-specifically in terms of uh, gender, but uh, whatever gender format we happen to, to be embodying, uh, uh, when we are nice and good and we draw upon that quality of sila and kindness, respectfulness, then there are many, many benefits that come from that. Uh, one of the suttas I like to quote is called The Eight, the, the eight Streams of Merit. Uh, it's in the Book of the Eights in the Anguttara Nikaya. You can find it. 
the streams of merit. The first three are taking refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. Uh, the, the, these are kind of sources of brightness of the heart, sources of, of uh, say, joy and happiness, peacefulness, real spiritual wealth, if you like, sources of punya. The streams of merit, uh, taking refuge in the Buddha, choosing to be awake, to be aware, to be wise, taking refuge in Dhamma, uh, living in accordance with reality, with, with, with nature, living in accord with Dhamma, uh, taking refuge in Sangha, uh, ch- choosing the, listening to that, that voice in the heart that loves the good, to, to choose the good, to ch- choose the honest and the wholesome and the noble. So those are the first three. And then the, 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 the last five of the eight streams of merit in this particular teaching are the five precepts. And in this respect, the Buddha says, you know, these five precepts, they are also the, the great gifts, the mahadana. So when we think of precepts, we, don't, we think of it, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. But in this particular teaching, the Buddha says, these are great gifts, because if you choose to not take life, then you grant to innumerable beings freedom from fear, freedom from distress, freedom from suffering, and you similarly grant to yourself freedom from fear, freedom from distress, freedom from, from suffering. When you choose to, to not steal or, or to uh, refrain from sexual misconduct, when you choose to not lie or not use intoxicants, then you give to other beings, uh, innumerable other beings, freedom from fear, freedom from distress, freedom from suffering. And you give that to yourself. So it's a gift. It's a giving. <laughs> so this is called abhayadana. Uh, the, the giving of fearlessness. So that's a great blessing of ke- uh, keeping the precepts, being a, being a nice guy, being a, a good person, living in a, a noble, respectful, honest way, not thinking of me first, but acting in a way that's, that's honest and respectful, is that uh, we create the causes where we ourselves, uh, we have a lot of self-respect, we feel free from anxiety, free from fear, free from distress, and other beings like to have us around. Uh, that we are, uh, people know they can trust us. Uh, people know that when we talk to them, we're not going to lie to them. We're not trying to get something from them. We're not going to to cheat them or deceive them or, or haven't got some kind of uh, unskillful agenda. But they they are they know they can relax around us. They don't have to hide their handbag under the seat when you come in the room, or <laughs> you know, uh, hide the the valuables when you come to visit. You know, put the silver away. You know, Amro is coming. So that uh, it's, a, it's a, a gift to others that, uh, in, in the workplace, in the family. People know that, that you can be trusted. And this is, a, this is a great blessing for yourself. Another couple of teachings uh, the, where, uh, where the Buddha refers to this kind of quality. Uh, firstly, in the Kalama Sutta, which is uh, uh, known mostly as when the Buddha said, you know, don't believe t- uh, religious teachings just because they're, they're in the scripture or because they're told to you by a a significant authority. But at the end, uh, in the latter part of the Kalama Sutta, if you want to look that up, um, and then he talks about what he called the four assurances, or the, the four kind of things that, that you can be sure of, or that can reassure us, if you like. And it's about conduct. And uh, he, uh, in this particular part of the Kalama Sutta, he says, uh, uh, w- uh, if, there is, uh, if, if there is a life after this one, then if you act in a way which is kind, generous, unselfish, 
then certainly your actions are going to lead or are going to incline you to being uh, able to reappear in a pleasant destination, in a heavenly realm, in a, in a delightful abiding. And even if there isn't, so the second assurance is, even if there isn't a life after this one, then right here and now you've created a pleasant abiding for yourself that people will respect you, you have no regrets, you'll be, you'll be relaxed and at ease, free of anxiety um, on account of, uh, uh, of that quality of self-respect. You're, you're generating that. Even if there's no life after this one, then the latter two are related to, and because of not doing anything that is destructive or, sel- or selfish or hurtful or dishonest, then similarly, if there's a life after this one, then you've protected yourself from reappearing in some unpleasant destination. You don't need to worry about that because you've been living in a way that's really uh, free of, of uh, what is unwholesome and destructive. And even if there is no life after this one, right now, you've created the causes where you don't have to be afraid of you know, finding you know, your lies being find out, found out or people disrespecting you or uh, you're, uh, you're filled with anxiety and regrets, a lack of self-respect and that uh, lack of self-hatred. There's a sense of comfort. You know, you're at home in your own skin, as it were. So uh, these are the four assurances that he talks about in the Kalama Sutta. And there's, it's closely related to another teaching. Again, if you want to look up, <laughs> there's a few, bit of homework from this talk today. So, uh, in the Sutta number 60, in the middle-length discourses, is called the, the incontrovertible teaching. It's a very long English word. The incontrovertible means you can't argue against it. It's, uh, this, uh, it's, uh, it's something that can't, uh, it's, it's got no, there's no gaps in it. There's no no flaws in this teaching. Sutta number 60, and he makes a very, very similar point where he says, if, there is a, if you live in a virtuous and kind, unselfish way, then if there is a life after this one, then you've made a, a, you've made a, 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 a you've set things in place to, to uh, end up in a pleasant destination. Even if there's no life after this one, then you, you sleep easily at night, good people respect you, you attract wise and good people to you, um, you are, uh, uh, and you are free of anxiety. And when your last breath comes, you have no regrets. And then similarly, uh, if, you, uh, 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 if you refrain from what's unwholesome, uh, and then in exactly the same way, uh, that the, you have a, a similar pleasant result. And he uses the imagery of, a, of, a, of gambling, so that you have a lucky throw on both counts. If you live in a skillful, wholesome way, you have a lucky throw on both counts. So it's what a Buddhist version of what's called Pascal's Wager in Christian philosophy, after Blaise Pascal, the French uh, philosopher of the 17th century, somewhere around there, <laughs> a few hundred years ago. So um, that uh, so nice guys in this respect, good people, rather than, than finishing last or, or, or uh, losing out, you actually, we, we actually create a huge amount of very positive qualities in our life, that sense of, of ease and self-respect, drawing good people to you, the lack of regrets, and the quality of, of being at home in your own body, your own skin, and that sense of, of contentment and self-respect. That's an important presence in our life. How many people nowadays suffer so much from self-criticism and self-hatred, depression, um, lack of uh, any sense of value or meaning in, in one's life. And a lot of it, I would say, is, is uh, based on 
the uh, you know, unskillful way that we, we handle our mind and, and our actions. So uh, an, a, a story I also uh, kind of interesting to tell uh, is that um, many years ago here at Amravati, uh, we were doing a wedding blessing. And uh, this was back in the early 80s. And um, uh, w- uh, one of the people, uh, there was a couple that used to support the monastery. Uh, and uh, the, um, the husband was a portrait painter, very skilled artist. Actually, a couple of his paintings are in the retreat center shrine room, a portrait of Lumpur Samedo and a portrait of Lumpur Cha. Um, so uh, uh, Don and um, Martha were getting married, and uh, Lumpur Samedo was doing their wedding blessing. And he had done quite a few portraits of local people. And so he'd invited a number of the people he'd done portraits for to this wedding blessing. So quite a few had no background in Buddhism. Amravati was pretty new in the area. And so um, the Ajahn Sumedha said, uh, Tan Amaro, um, there's quite a few people coming to this wedding blessing who know nothing about Buddhism. Can you give them a kind of 10-minute prep on you know, what Buddhism is and you know, what the ceremony is about, you know, all this chanting in Pali and the, the refuges and precepts and so on? So I sat down in, um, in uh, what's now the Ubon room, uh, it was uh, the children's playroom at that time, the rainbow room, and a little get-together with about 15 people, 20 of the, of the wedding blessing guests, and gave this spiel about, about Buddhism and about the refuges and precepts and, and the, 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 the ceremony chanting the Purita and so on. Uh, at the end of that, uh, that little uh, presentation, then one of the people came up to me and, and uh, he said, uh, oh, Don did my portrait a, a, few, a few months ago, and so I got invited to this blessing. He said, what you were saying about Buddhism, he said, you might be surprised to hear, but uh, I teach at Ashridge Management College just across the valley, and we teach exactly the same stuff that you do. <laughs> he said, you might, because it was a kind of a high finance management training center. It still is. It's slightly, it's under different management now, um, but uh, uh, it's still a, a kind of business college. And he said, you might be very surprised thinking this is a spiritual center, but we teach exactly the same things that you do. And he said, I'm very interested to hear what you said about the precepts. He said, because in the business world, you find exactly the same thing. And uh, I rem- this was 30 years ago we had this conversation, but uh, it really stuck in my mind because what he said was, you know, in the business world, you can make a lot of money very quickly if you cheat. If you're aggressive, if you're selfish, if you just have no scruples and you just take advantage of uh, everyone around you, you can make a lot of money quickly, but it won't last long. Uh, again, maybe it was related to that, the people who produced that advert. <laughs> for the, you know, unf- shame about the meek who will not inherit the earth. But uh, he said, because what happens is that if you are unscrupulous and selfish and, uh, and uh, aggressive, then you can make a lot of money very quickly, but very soon people know they can't trust you. And, so, and in the business world, trust is everything. That you, it, it all runs, the whole stock market runs on confidence, on trust. And the business world runs on reputation and trust. And if people know you can't be trusted, uh, if, what you, if you're lying to them or you're unscrupulous, or you're telling them one thing and doing something else, you might get away with it for a, you know, a year or two, but very quickly people will just not want to do business with you. They'll, they'll, uh, they'll leave you alone, <laughs> and, and then things will, will cave in. But so the people who are, are honest, even if they 
um, they, the, they won't kind of make big promises or they'll say, yes, well, we can give you a, we can guarantee a 2% return, but we can't, uh, can't promise you anything more than that. But we, we think we can, we can uh, uh, if you invest with us, we can, we can uh, do this for you, but we're not sure. Even if it's not a big promise, uh, they know, people know they say what they mean and that they can, we can rely on them. They're not telling us one thing just to, to fool us or, or to take advantage. That's, they, they mean what they say. They say what they mean. And so those people, uh, the business will sustain itself. And those are the businesses that have lasted uh, uh, long over a long period of time and have continued to do, to do well in a steady way. So that, that conversation stuck with me. Uh, for, for for many many years, and uh, uh, and I feel that uh, not that I'm giving advice to business people. <laughs> I have done. I have given a few talks over at Ashridge. Uh, I've been invited to give uh, a couple of uh, of talks there over the years. But uh, it was very interesting how he, he saw there's a direct parallel that uh, if you are virtuous and honest and kind, that pays off in the long run, even if it might be seem to uh, on the short in the short term that. You're not being strong. You're you're being taken advantage of, or you could uh, you could do better. That honesty uh, it pays, uh, and kindness and unselfishness and that reliability uh, pays off in the long run. So a few other things I'd like to, to share with you with, with respect to, to the uh, about virtue and sila and being a good person, a, a nice person, is. Um, sometimes when we look at the precepts, people say, well, it says, don't do this, don't do that. You know, I undertake to refrain from taking life, to refrain from stealing, refrain from sexual misconduct, refrain from lying, refrain from intoxicants. It's a lot of no, 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 no. Uh, wouldn't it be nicer or better or more appealing to say, you know, we should be kind to all beings. You know, we should be generous to all beings. You know, we should be, uh, say, uh, uh, emphasizing that the positive side uh, and uh, and some um, some Buddhist teachers in the current times, they very consciously express their, their teachings and their practices in that way. And I'm not I'm not putting that down or belittling that, but uh, it has come it has come up uh, many many times over the years. How come it's cast into such a sort of uh, you know, a negative, seemingly negative form? Don't do this, don't do that. Um, and uh, you know what's the reason behind that? And one thing I thought I'd share with you is kind of interesting is that uh, I was at a, a Buddhist conference in San Francisco a few years ago, and a man called Cl uh, Professor Clifford Saron was giving a presentation. And he's a neuroscientist, and uh, his area is behavior, and the neuroscience of behavior. And uh, what he said was that the area of the brain that governs no is a very different area to the brain that governs yes. And so the area that the brain says, you know, be kind to all beings, is not the same brain, not, it's not the same part of the brain that says, don't kill things. It's, a, it's physically a different part of the, of the whole system. And the chemistry of how those uh, decisions are made uh, is somewhat different in those two areas. And so that um, it seems like the Buddha was, uh, once again, <laughs> completely on the mark in terms of... Because, uh, of what actually, um, and what also Professor Saron, Clifford Saron said was that in terms of actually changing behavior in a positive way, no works much better than yes. And, you know, don't do uh, works more effectively than, than do. 
So the idea, I'm not telling people to not be kind to other beings, <laughs> but just to have the idea, I should be kind towards other beings, uh, doesn't have the same effect on a practical level as don't kill things. Uh, again, I, I hope this is coming across in an appropriate way. Uh, it was fascinating to me that uh, why the Buddha, and it seemed to, to resonate absolutely with the, why, the reason why the Buddha structured things in his teaching in that way, because he was concerned about what makes a difference on the practical level, <laughs> what actually changes the behavior. And it wasn't as though Clifford Saron was sort of speaking as a Buddhist, particularly. He was speaking as a neuroscientist. But it was, uh, and I, I chatted with him afterwards and said, do you realize how completely this meshes with the principles of the way that the Buddha spoke, at least according to our, our scriptures? Um, but uh, the, um, the, the point being, what actually helps to change the behavior is going to that don't steal things, don't kill things, don't engage in sexual misconduct, don't, don't lie. So it seems as though the Buddha crafted his way of training as what's going to make a difference most effectively on the ground. And that, so he has very much a pragmatic approach rather than um, you know, all, uh, all beings, uh, the lives of all beings are precious, therefore we, should re you know, therefore we should have loving kindness for all beings. Yes, that's there in the Metta Sutta and in the cultivation of loving kindness. But in terms of conduct, <laughs> then... What to do is don't kill anything, you know, don't steal things, you know, don't engage in, don't flirt with people that you're not connected, you're not, you don't, you're not in a formal relationship with, you know, don't lie to people, um, don't use intoxicants. And it's interesting, uh, just as a, another aside, with respect to intoxicants, is that uh, when the Buddha uh, lays out what are intrinsically unwholesome actions, killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, and lying are the first four of the akusala kamala, the, the unskillful actions. Uh, al the consumption of drugs and alcohol don't come onto the list. Ooh, that's not, yeah, fifth precept is not on the list. Ooh, we got, we got, some, we got some movement there. There's, a, there's some negotiation, there's some wiggle room there. You know. This has been raised in the past. But it's, uh, the, the consumption of drugs and alcohol are not intrinsically unwholesome as killing, stealing, lying are automatically and intrinsically but that's what knocks a hole in the fence that's what causes the the reptiles to get out is after we've had a, a, probably everyone here at least those of us probably a few of us a bit too young to have consumed too much alcohol or drugs but uh, the um, those of us who have taken a few drinks in the past will know that the the viability of the precepts uh, weakens uh, with the increase of alcohol or drugs or mental distortion that comes from that. That's what knocks a hole in the fence and the reptiles get out, speaking from personal experience, and a few scars. <laughs> so that, uh, that uh, I feel, is, is uh, helpful to, to consider uh, and that, um, the, uh, um, that when we language things in terms of don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, the, the, the methodology of the Buddha is what's going to work on the ground, what's going to work in our lives most effectively. And, and he was a pragmatic teacher, a practical teacher, rather than an idealistic one. So he, he started from where we are rather than where we, where we should be or could be. Maybe uh, the last thing to, to, uh, to share, I brought along this little book called The A to Z of Corruption. Uh, this is the... A, a book that originally produced by NIDA, the National Institute for Development Administration, 
which is a, an organization, an educational organization in Thailand, NIDA. And I was invited to give a talk there um, and uh, on the theme of uh, you know, the uh, Buddhist principles for, uh, for you know, a, a wholesome society. And so I gave this hour-long talk all about you know, how to apply Buddhist principles to you know, the Buddhist ideals for a perfect society. And I thought it was, I packed a lot into the hour. And I thought, okay, that pretty much covers everything, I think. And then the, the head of the institute then had her hand up, first, you know, first question. Said, so I've got a question for you. Um, so that's all very well, but... <laughs> okay, she's the boss, so you know, what, what's, what's going to come here? So it's all very well to have all these perfect principles laid out, and, and I agree with everything that you said, but the problem is corruption. The problem is that we can have all these wonderful principles laid out, but people uh, seek self-advantage. They bend the rules. They, they kind of go, they go around things in order to, to benefit themselves, their family. They, they're, they're not honest. And the source of this book, and I was so impressed with this little book, it, it literally is an A to Z of corruption. So you have you know, B for bribery, backhand, backhander, K for kickback, uh, L for legal loopholes. <laughs> so we have cop copies of this that are available in the lobby, yeah. free. Um, but I did an English version of it because I was so impressed uh, with uh, its skillfulness. And the, what she said was, which was really interesting, was that We've tried all kinds of things to try and to, uh, stop corruption uh, in, in Thailand. It's not just Thailand. Many, many countries around the world, it's the same. But it said the, the adults seem to be beyond help. But uh, so what we're trying to do is to actually educate the next generation. So we thought, okay, the adults are hopeless. Let's aim for the children. And so they produced this. It's, it's a children's kind of cartoon book. It's a, it's a kind of primary school kids' book. Um, uh, about corruption and the, the beauty and the power of honesty and how valuable that is. So I was so impressed with the skillfulness of that and say, yes, it's all very well to have these high-minded ideals, the, the synderesis, the love of the good, but <laughs> along with that we have to address the actuality of the habits of the reptile brain and the, oh, look, there's a gap in the fence. <laughs> they know, there's certain of the reptiles know where the, the gap in the fence is and can find a way through to get an advantage for me and you know, for good reasons, really good reasons why, why I, me and my family deserve a little bit extra or, well, you know, she, he is my nephew and, and he does deserve a bit of a boost, I mean, after all and so it, uh, I feel that's a, it's a very good result, I'm not, just because I, did, I helped to edit the book, I'm not so, it's not for sale, you know, it's all free, but uh, uh, just to let people know the, the background to that and it, it is, I feel, a very very helpful resource in this respect and maybe the, the very last thing to share with you about uh, coming last, or like, uh, nice guys finish last, um, uh, you know, or do they? Uh, to say finishing last is not always a bad thing. And um, that uh, um, people might not know, but when I was a teenager, I was uh, in my own little domain quite a successful athlete. I was, uh, well, a rugby player uh, in the wintertime, but in the summertime, uh, I used to run, uh, I used to do hurdles. I was just, I'm quite short and stocky, but I got very flexible hips I inherited from my dear mother. And so I, was, I found I was quite good, quite quick over hurdles. And I became the Kent County champion at hurdles, 80-meter hurdles and 100-meter hurdles at the, as a junior and intermediate level. 
So I, I was only one of two pupils in my school that ran for the Kent team. So if you got to qualify for the, the and win the county, cha cha county championships, you got a big flash that you could put on the back of your tracksuit, Kent. And I was really proud of this you know, Kent uh, flash on the back of my tracksuit. There's only me and one other really good athlete in the school who, who were runners for Kent. And I was, I was very kind of really pleased with myself. And I just happened to wear that tracksuit with great regularity, kind of every opportunity that was, uh, and happened to wear it in the wintertime as well, you know, even as well as in the summer. And so then, uh, so I qualified for the national championships and uh, went along and I thought, I was pretty pleased with myself and got there. It was in, in London in this sort of big, uh, big stadium, you know, hundreds and hundreds of athletes from all around the country. Uh, get, my race comes along, get in the first heat, and I'm completely left in the dust, like second to last. Like, and, the, and the ones who, who went, won the race were like way, way faster than me. And like, right, I'm not so hot. <laughs> <laughs> I was really something in, in Kent, uh, and in my little kind of the Maidstone and District uh, you know, athletics, I, I was pretty, pretty something. But uh, in terms of the nationals, I was completely left in the, in, in the dust. And that was good. I thought, well, yeah, these guys are really good. They're much faster than me. And, uh, yeah, I did think I was something special, but in the greater context of things, I'm really not that special, not that, not that different. And part of me was very consciously like, mm, I want to win. And then realizing, well, why, why should I be the one that wins? You know, the, 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 um, that, yeah, I was glad to be able to be in the competition, but... Uh, I'm definitely not up to the standard of those people. And in terms of, I mean, I wasn't consciously being spiritual at the time, but it was like, yeah, it's not a, I could see it's not a bad thing just to be another ordinary runner who's left sort of second to last. And that what's, what's so wrong with being second to last and out in the first heats? What's wrong with that? Oh. And a final story to share with you, the final one. So when I was in California, uh, early years of California, we used to have a, a, a couple of weekly sessions. We used to rent a, a Christian church called St. Aidan's Church in an area of San Francisco called Diamond Heights. And the, the minister of that church, as an Episcopalian church, Church of England church, the minister was um, uh, Reverend Jim Jelinek. And he had been in Thailand a few times, and he would occasionally invite me out for a meal. And one day he invited me to this Thai restaurant in San Francisco, offering me a meal. And he told me this story. And, uh, and he, uh, he sort of shared with me, he said, you know, the position of Bishop of Carmel came up. And I put my name forward to be considered to this. And this is a big deal in the, like in the Christian church to become a bishop. And so I put my name forward and I got into the last three. And I was really kind of, yes, in Carmel is a really nice little town by the, by the, the seashore in California. And, and, uh, and it was very, very prestigious. And he said, I got into the last three, and then they chose the other guy. And I was really disappointed. I was so annoyed, and I was kind of really upset, and my mind was sort of churned up with, you know, ah, I wish I'd have won. You know, I really should have been chosen. And, and he said, and then about six weeks later, early in the morning, I'm standing in the bathroom shaving, and I suddenly realize they chose the right bloke. They chose the better man. For it, oh, <laughs> so apropos of nothing very, nothing very special. He said, "Oh, actually, the better person was given the job. 
I wasn't really the best choice. And it was, he wasn't thinking about it. It was just, uh, it just sort of, when all his usual mental activity was out of the way, then he realized, actually, the better person was chosen. The more suitable person was chosen. Oh, so, <laughs> so uh, he, uh, uh, he, he shared that with me and uh, said that, that he became really glad. I'm really glad they didn't chose me, choose me because if they had have done, uh, I would have been taking hold of the role for all the wrong reasons as a kind of ego trip rather than as a good servant of the people and the, the, the Christian uh, people, members of the church or that area. And uh, so I, I like to share that as a story, that uh, that realization, oh, perhaps me not winning was <laughs> the, 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 the better thing and that uh, other people were more suitable. He eventually became the Bishop of Minnesota and uh, he retired recently, but uh, he, he did get appointed bishop later on and uh, was the bishop of the whole state of Minnesota uh, for, for many, many years. So anyway, I will leave things there for this afternoon. We can have a, a, a bit of a tea break now. There should be refreshments out in the cloister, all being well. So uh, it's about... Uh, we've gone a little bit over time. It's just about five past now, so maybe if we meet back together, 25 past. So give you 20 minutes for a refreshment break. So I think people will be slowly trickling in, so we can uh, begin. There's a couple of microphones, so if people have any questions, please do uh, use the microphone so I can hear and other people can hear the questions too. Please don't be shy. These sessions are for all of you. So, Any questions that arise from what I was saying or things that uh, like clarification, then please ask away. Thank you for your talk. Um, so I found it really interesting about the reptile mind and the higher kind of mind. But, you know, in that instance, <clears throat> when the reptile mind is so strong, how is that calmed down to the point where you can then see clarity to you know get to your logical mind so how do you in a way rein in <clears throat> the reptiles when you a <laughs> <laughs> uh, good question um, one of the main things is drawing close to good people the, the Buddha emphasized the the company that we keep makes a big difference so if you choose to spend your Sunday afternoon in a Buddhist monastery <laughs> rather than going to a boxing match or uh, out to a, a, a party, then it's like, okay, the, the people that you're choosing to be with are more meditative, spiritually inclined than people who like to gamble on a fight. Uh, not that you would, I mean, I don't want to make presumptions, but just as a random example. So the, the, the actions that we take, who we choose to be with, what we make as a sort of day-to-day priority uh, even in sort of in the workplace, who you choose to hang out with in in the school or the office or the college wherever you work, and um, the uh, also the daily practice of meditation and development of mindfulness, uh, learning to work how uh, work out how the mind operates, where it gets triggered, uh, is is very very helpful. So that meditation and then uh, and then mindfulness. Uh, is a way of recognizing, okay, uh, I'm not too bothered by, by sounds and by music or you know, by 
um, that domain, but the visual forms, oh, I get really, really stirred up by things that I see and things that I think is attractive or unattractive that has a big impact. So uh, meditation uh, is a way of getting to know our own conditioning, the habits that we have, what we've acquired during our, our life and so on. Um, so the degree to which you can establish a daily meditation practice, at least you know, a, a period of time, at least once a day, a couple of times a day if possible, that's very, very helpful. But uh, it, uh, drawing close to good people, and then the, then taking the precepts seriously, you know, that also just making those choices, because the the more that one has allowed the reptiles to knock a hole through the fence, <laughs> and then they they kind of there are weak spots in the fence where where they uh, we've kind of followed those impulses in the past, so that uh, the the precepts are a way of. Uh, if we take those seriously and keep those in a sincere way, then not, not in the kind of neurotic, oh, I, I got, you know, I'm, I'm a bad person if I do this or I, am, I should be punished if I do that, but rather just seeing it in those kind of practical terms that uh, if I tell a lie, then what happens? I feel anxious, I feel lack of self-respect, I'm worried about the other person finding out that it wasn't true, I lose, they lose, everybody loses. <laughs> and then, again, without, without dwelling on that or making a lot of negativity, I say, okay, if that is done, this is the result. That's the cause, this is the effect. Ow! And then just leaving it at that. Just, and then the opposite, if you are honest or if you are kind or generous, if you act in a way that's unselfish, then similarly, okay, I just put myself out, I said, I can, I can help you, and I so gave up half a day to, to do that. How does this feel? Good. Yes. Yeah, this feels good. Again, full stop. Don't have to make, oh, I'm a wonderful person, or, uh, or what do I get? You know, I, I did all of that. What do I get from it? <laughs> but rather just that good, that wholesome and beautiful thing was done. Here is the result. So like that, those sort of assurances that the, the Buddha was talking about, that Right, the result of, of wholesome action is felt right here and now, you know that, and acknowledging that, and so then that strengthens the the kind of initiative to act in a way that's kind and, and noble and 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 unselfish. So then, because it's important not to make the reptile brain the enemy or a problem, it's part of what we are. <laughs> it's like it's sort of a uh, the, the our whole sort of chemistry, our ancestry. So. Those impulses are not a not a problem or not bad or evil in themselves. It's just that if they are uh, if they're given um, uh, more control or more agency than is is necessary or is useful, then problems ensue. Like if the fence comes down, the dinosaurs, the the velociraptors get out, then there's trouble in the kitchen. You know. <laughs> but the, you have to hide from the velociraptors. Yeah. So that um, uh, not um, creating sort of negativity or, or aversion or suppression, but it's uh, trying to have a, a, a healthy and skillful relationship to those areas of our being. That's a, that's a, a large part of it too. So uh, um, many of uh, Ajahn Sumedho's teachings about mindfulness of emotion, in, in many of his Dhamma talks he'll talk about this, like, uh, recognizing the impulse of being angry or being jealous, 
not to hate that or fear that, but just to recognize, well, I have a body, I have a mind, so anger arises from time to time. If it's followed, then it's painful for me, it's painful for the others, therefore it's not a good idea to follow it. But it's part of the natural system. So that you're recognizing it's part of nature, but not everything that's natural is helpful. <laughs> and so that uh, in that way, you're developing a, a wise and skillful relationship to those aspects of, of our being. Any other thoughts, questions, clarifications? I really, yes, please. Thank you. Um, Ajahn, I wanted to ask about um, being taken advantage of. Because, uh, you know, when you're trying to be um, compassionate or trying to be selfless, mm -hmm. in those circumstances, um, there is a tendency to be taken advantage of, which uh, can happen. And... Uh, obviously, you have to try and protect yourself as well through, uh, I'm talking about sort of the uh, environments of work um, and, uh, or even school, children. I mean, I, uh, you know, we, we hear instances, because I'm a doctor and a psychiatrist and I have, you know, patients telling me that they were bullied at school. Um, and as they grow up as adults, they, they carry that, that imprint in their mind of having been taken advantage of and... Mm. And then that, if there's a certain personality trait in certain people, they carry that, um, uh, you know, being taken advantage of or trying to please somebody else too yes, much. Yeah. And so um, those kind of personalities then are at risk of certain uh, conditions such as depression and anxiety. So although um, that's very inherent in them, but uh, your advice on... Um, I understand what the teachings are, but um, it, living in this in this world where people are very competitive, um, and you know results can you know do take as you mentioned that company eventually became first the one that <laughs> yes with the the blueprint on the face yeah That's I think right. they they uh, yeah. they lasted a couple of years after that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, so did you, did you finish yet? Yeah. So uh, that's, uh, as I was speaking, that, I was, that did cross my mind once or twice that uh, along with being uh, available and good and kind and generous, yeah, we can be taken advantage of. And, and uh, so it's, within that, it's important to recognize that, that this being is one of the beings to be compassionate towards uh, as well. And sometimes um, uh, that w we are helpful just because of wanting validation and wanting to be wanted. Um, uh, uh, I often quote, there was an interesting statistic that came up many years ago now, but they did a, a very thorough psychological profile of all the social workers in the UK. And um, they found that something like the 85 or 90% of social workers were almost compulsively needy of being, being loved. And they thought, oh my goodness, what do we do? You know, do we fire 90% of our social workers because <laughs> they, they need to be loved? Um, and they realize, well, no, that would be very extreme and, and not helpful. But just recognizing that, oh, that people go into social work seemingly with a, a large amount of um, finding value from being appreciated. And, but it doesn't mean that the work that they do in the, in the society is not helpful, but it's just, that's a large part of their, their psychology is that need to be needed. So, I th so I think re the, the degree to which we can recognize that, unlike the social services department, kind of, okay, we have to work with this, and, and they, they, uh, 
they sort of developed ways of helping people to understand that neediness or needing to be needed or wanting validation from people appreciating them and expressing their, their love and, and uh, the, the, the value that they were given by being helpful. And, uh, and uh, I, for myself, I, I, I realized I, I've been in the monastic life for quite a long time before I realized I was heavily dependent on being appreciated and wanting to, everyone to like me and approve of me and, and do everything that would get, score points. And like a part of being the most competitive monk was so that if I came out on top, if I really was you know, the super monk that did everything best, then everyone would like me and appreciate me. And you know, I've mentioned this kind of th this area many times in Dhamma talks, and and uh, I realizing this is really hard work. <laughs> this is kind of c compulsive, doing all this stuff to to get this validation. Why why do I do this? Where's this coming from? Or what's driving this? So it took me a long you know as a professional meditator, <laughs> still took me a long long time to really see that dynamic. But once it was seen, then. Uh, the, I found that the mind was able to appreciate it in a bit more of a balanced way. Like, yes, there is the the kind of charge that comes when you're appreciated, or people give that expression of of, of approval and affirmation. But that in itself is just a charge. It's just like dopamine landing on a particular bit of the brain that says yes. That's all, and that this. Uh, the the um, having compassion for this being and, and not just feeding into that sense of of needing validation and approval and and uh, ex that kind of gestures of acceptance uh, and I found that just seeing how that dynamic worked it helped the mind to get much more of a perspective on that and so uh, actually what I, I did again I've mentioned many times I started to uh, to to no longer do everything possible to score points. And uh, I started to be unavailable because I, I literally had an open door policy in the in the vihara. It's like anyone can come to my door anytime, and, and I'm available. And I got a you know a delighting in solitude notice my door. Like, you're not available, <laughs> and that was hard to do. Like just to say no, I'm uh, my door is closed. I'm not available. And some part of me was going, but 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 but. <laughs> And, but because the kind of breathlessness or desperation in that, I thought, okay, this is definitely something that needs to be let go of. And, and so um, uh, I spent a, a couple of years just sort of looking at that. Uh, I used to always pick up litter, you know, bits of rubbish that were around the place. I'd always pick them up and put them in a bin. And I trained myself to walk past pieces of litter, you know, cigarette butts and sweet wrappers, and just walk past them and leave them where they were. <laughs> took a lot of doing, but because I was very identified with, I clear up after other people. That's what I do, yeah. And that, uh, no, well, it's just, a, it's just, it is what it is. It doesn't have to have me pick it up. Someone else can pick it up and do do what might do what's useful. I I don't have to to be that person. And I'm not encouraging people to scatter litter all over the place, <laughs> but it was a, a kind of a very deliberate exercise on my part to to not be that helpful person, and then just to look at that. And there was this enormous relaxation, I'm like, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> and I've also often mentioned how, during that time, one of my brother monks said to me, you know, you're much easier to live with since you stopped trying to be perfect. And I thought, well, that's interesting. <laughs> that my effort to be sort of good and to get everything right and to be approved and to be the sort of the perfect monk was actually irritating. 
and <laughs> much, much more kind of pleasant to be with when I just sort of, as Lumpur Chama put it, live simply, be natural, just don't have to be this thing. So um, that kind of compulsive helping, um, uh, I think just to recognize it, that, that element, if that's there in our makeup, and to, to look at that when, uh, and to, to acknowledge, I know I'm not selfish, I'm not lazy, I do care, but I don't have to keep proving that. I don't have to keep getting affirmation of that. I can, uh, I, I can just be content with that. I, I do care, and uh, I, I'm not lazy, not selfish, uh, and I don't have to do everything. <laughs> And then just letting that, the, the relaxation that comes from that, to be fully acknowledged. Like I, like I was saying to our friend, that, that just really knowing that, okay, when, when you change the attitude in that way, how does it feel? Like, you know, very peaceful, very natural, and much more spacious. Okay, then you take the lead from, from that. Uh, you know, along the way, we're going to notice times when we are compulsively helping and trying to please. And, and then even, and this was a, a kind of a practice that Ajahn Chah would talk about. He said, even as you find yourself following desire and you can't actually stop it, just make it, make it conscious. Okay, here I am doing that thing again. I said I wasn't going to do this and here I am doing it. Okay, let's just watch where this goes. And he made this really, uh, really uh, important observation he said 50 to 70 percent of the practice is knowing that you should let go and not being able to and so that we're in the middle of that kind of compulsively doing and helping and being this thing i'm doing it again aren't i <laughs> here it goes and there isn't enough to just sort of or it's not appropriate just to sort of stop in midstream but you there's the okay it's that pattern again now where is this going and then, okay, I, can, I, I know where this is going, yeah, that's where it's going, yeah, and now we've got there, and yeah, okay, how does this feel? And so you're kind of, there's part of the mind tracking it as you go along, and okay, that's, what, that's how it works. Again, not with creating self-criticism or aversion, just, okay, this is the pattern, this is where it goes, this is where it ends up, ow. <laughs> and then letting that speak for itself, letting it have, that, that have its effect. And that's uh, sometimes when people hear that advice from Lumpur Chah, that they think, oh, that's just giving us excuses to act on impulse or follow our desires or aversions. So, no, he's recognizing, like I was saying, that the part of the brain that responds to no is different to the, the part of the brain that responds to yes or do. You know, that, you know, that, that the part of us that says, I want, I've got to, I've got to, is different to the part of the brain that's saying, is this really a good idea or... You, you know where this goes, don't you? <laughs> it's a different aspect of our psyche, a different quality of the, the mind. And just respecting that, that you, like if you're addicted to, to cigarettes or to caffeine, you, know, you can't just decide for that chemistry to go away. It, it has its effect. You can feel the effects and you can acknowledge them. That I really want a cup of coffee or I really want a cigarette. Uh, and that... that you know what it is, you can feel it, but you don't have to follow it. You can recognize the effects of that. So similarly, uh, we can look at that neediness and recognize, yeah, that this is being acted on, but uh, it isn't anything very helpful. <laughs> I know where it goes. And then that very 
uh, quality of knowing it, feeling it, and then acknowledging the, the results of it, that's the balancing element. That's what helps it to be really understood and let go of. If the mind takes hold of it and says, like, I'm a bad person, I shouldn't be doing this, I've got to get over it, you know, I need to get rid of this, then that just feeds the whole um, uh, compulsive habit. It's that sort of cool, clear recognition, here's the cause, here's the effect. Ow. <laughs> and then it's not even really a, let, a, a letting go, it just sort of falls off on its, on its own eventually. In the, the, a little book uh, I did called uh, Don't Push, uh, Just Use the Weight of Your Own Body, there's a series of little booklets I did on the Brahma Viharas. So in that one that's on compassion, uh, called Don't Push, that's got some things in there about compulsive helping. And if, you might, if you haven't seen that already, you might want, that might be useful. Thank you, Ajahn. Ajahn, uh, for the talk, uh, we come from Australia. Um, there, there was one question that on the no part of the brain, uh, you know, it works better than the, the, the ears part of the brain. Um, we, in the pandemic time, we had like 2,500 people working from home, and we need to come up with a slogan, you know, how to kind of keep all of them together. So we came up with the slogan called, uh, do the right thing, even no one is watching and do the right thing even no one is watching because they are all working from home. <laughs> uh, and uh, so we splash this on the, uh, on the, on the, on the, on the screen server and uh, saver and all that kind of thing. So my question is that, should, I say, should we have said, don't do the wrong thing when no one is watching <laughs> <laughs> rather than do the right thing when you want to, so, so. Oh, good point, that's a good question. Do the right thing even though no one's watching. Well, uh, um, one of the things that Ajahn, again, that to quote uh, Venerable Ajahn Shah, he said, you think no one's watching, but you're watching. <laughs> so that's part, part of the mixture as well. Um, uh, but yeah, I think, yeah, don't do the wrong thing. Uh, again, uh, uh, according to that, that basic principle, I would say that that will probably uh, work in, a, in an effective way. But um, yeah, I couldn't guarantee that. I've yeah, yeah, because because uh, people, I mean, we suggested that, and then people said, uh, you know, you got to look at it more positive way, and you know, people at home, and you know, you know, don't want to be. Uh, so maybe we'll change it and see how it goes. Yeah, that, that's. Uh, I'm I'm a great believer in experimentation. You know, to try things out and see what the result is, because you can never. I've never been to Australia, so I can't predict how that how it would have its effect on. Uh, uh, the um, uh, on the kind of Australian psyche, <laughs> but uh, you uh, I would recommend giving it a try and seeing what happens. Um, as we were, yes, it's working. As you were speaking, uh, reminded me of um, you know when you said um, you cleaning the the roadway, you know, I mean the, the side of the road um, that you would not do it like. Many of us know that, you know what I mean? I'm not going to do this for at least three weeks and mm -hmm. change, you know? And as you were saying this, it's also reminded me, uh, you know, of the, the time when you can do it, but you begin to see the thoughts that are associated mm -hmm. with it, you know, it's like the story, but you don't change anything about cleaning the side, <laughs> but you just listen to these thoughts, mm -hmm. which are an object rather than a, 
the real stories that you believe in. You know, so yeah, the, that's some it. Other, some other way of you are saying this. I said, mm. yeah. yeah, it's a, a, a certainly a, um, uh, another aspect of it. Dur during that same period, I remember the um, uh, the public lose uh, at the end of that central block. They're much smarter now than they used to be. They used to be significantly grungy for 30 years or more. <laughs> no matter how, how hard we tried to look after them, they would always uh, revert to being grungy. And uh, the, uh, often I would go in there, and, they, um, and again, I would, during this period, I, I, would, uh, I would always tidy up the... The uh, the sink and kind of clean the the, the soap area and, and wipe the wipe the sink down and, and uh, dry things off uh, after other people, and uh, and then I was carrying out that same kind of leave it for other people to do, and then I thought well actually this really is neglected and it really is pretty grungy so maybe I should uh, just uh, still clean the sink and, and look at the pride that I've got for me being the one that does it so yeah that. Uh, uh, another way of approaching it, even as you do the tidying up and cleaning, just to say, look at what the the mind is is making of that, and uh, and yeah, it's because any way of highlighting and getting familiar with the patterns of of thinking and attitude, that's uh, you know that's going to be helpful. And if different things are going to work more effectively for different people, you can't really predict. But uh, that was, um, you know, that. Uh, uh, you know, the sometimes just sort of doing the necessary to, to tidy things up or to fix things, that it's it can be the kind of wrong the wrong kind of non-attachment. Like uh, the the story was often told by Lumpo Cha how when he was walking around the the monastery at Wat Bapong in the early days when the the, the kutis had thatched roofs and it was the rainy season and he was walking around and he saw one of the kutis half of the roof had caved in and he thought uh, and he thought oh. This this kuti is really in a state of collapse, and then he saw some some sandals on the on the steps. And thought, oh, there's, there's a monk living in there. Huh? That's strange. Half the roof is gone, and he went in and he found uh, this, uh, I think Ajahn Sinawan sitting in under the the half of the kuti where the roof was. And he said, you know, Sinawan, what are you doing here? The uh, the, the you know the roof of your kuti's caved in. Why haven't you fixed it? And he said, well, I'm practicing non-attachment. <laughs> so Ajahn Sinawan. Was, became featured in Dhamma talks for decades. <laughs> As an example, this is the wrong kind of non-attachment. This is this is a foolish non-attachment. No, it's like practice non-attachment and fix the roof. You know, otherwise the whole kuti is going to fall apart. So I mention Ajahn Sinawan's name because it's in many many printed talks already. So I'm not uh, not consciously shaming him, but uh, it's well known. Uh, Local material. Any final thoughts, questions, reflections? Yes, there's one there at the gentleman with the black t shirt. Oh, okay, okay go ahead, go ahead. Uh, Bante, I just wanted to find out what's the tipping point between Chanda and Tanha? <laughs> That's where mindfulness comes in, and because uh, it, it's like uh, when you're eating food, what's the what's the, the tipping point between the right amount and, and too much? Uh, the, there's no fixed formula, but mindfulness is what uh, helps us to recognize. Oh, okay, that's enough. So 
it's not uh, something that you can calculate. It's uh, in a way, it's a quality of attention and so sort of intuitive awareness, a sense of 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 uh, getting to know what that the feeling of craving is like, and getting to know what the the feeling of the right amount is like. Um, uh, and using mindfulness to, to know those states of mind, that the kind of psychological tone, really, or texture. And uh, it's really just m your mindfulness uh, uh, supported by a lot of meditation practice. That's what really brings that. So that the, and, the, and the intention to be watching, to be paying attention, to, to be, you know, you need to be, be interested. Okay, where is the line? Where, where is the, the tipping point? Uh, if you're not really interested in that, then it'll keep missing it. <laughs> so that there needs to be that motivation. Okay, now, like say with, with eating food, you know that the, uh, you know all of us eat uh, uh, every day probably, uh, and so uh, that sense of learning to eat just how much is enough to keep the body healthy and and going, and how much is too much or more than necessary, and that if you pay attention. Then uh, and you really kind of, uh, are being interested in finding that line. Then you can notice quite distinctly. Okay, that's enough. Then the, the next thing is okay. Then put the spoon down or the fork. That's set part two. Because <laughs> it can be like that's enough. Well, maybe a bit more just in case. You know, you know, I've got a lot of things to do this afternoon, and you know, but the, the lawyer, the legal team can come. Come in and make a make a case for having a bit more. Just just, uh, but if you pay attention and then uh, have the resolution to put the the fork or the spoon or the chopsticks or whatever down, then then there's that can be that recognition of oh yeah that's that's just the right amount. That and then you can see during the course of the rest of the day how okay or the, till the next meal that uh, yeah that that was that proved itself to be true. Therefore, that that sense is to be trusted. So it's not just kind of finding that line, but then following it up, and that's the vimangsa element. Like, okay, that having been done, then what's the result of it? Um, so that uh, I would say, in meditation and uh, mindfulness, as uh, in, in the flow of, of interactions and activities. Um, uh, whether you're in, the, in terms of the work that you do or in conversations with people or, or in meditation practice, whatever it might be, that um, getting to know that, and it can be quite subtle because you know, not every kind of tanha is very obvious. So like in, in meditation, that the desire, the tanha, to, I want to get concentrated, I want to get rid of my defilements, I want to get insight, it's, it can all seem like, well, that's what the instructions tell us. But the, the, the I've got to get, I want to get rid of, that, that I am, that I'm making and my making, that's, that, that's still subtle kinds of tanha. Bhava tanha, the desire to become. Vibhava tanha, the desire to get rid of. So with food, it's, uh, as an example, it's kind of obvious and tangible and sort of visible. But, and that's sort of karma, karma tanha, the kind of sense, the desire for sense pleasure. But the, with the desire to become, the desire to get rid of, they're much more kind of quiet and subtle. So they take more of a sort of close and careful attention. But in, in terms of meditation and spiritual development, they're 
almost more important than the the kind of karma tanha, that's the, the more obvious and tangible, visible qualities of sense pleasure. But but uh, uh, again, you you uh, with working with it, and over time, you develop more and more of a sense of where the mind is working, uh, guided and energized by mindfulness and wisdom. And then when it's switched over to I've got to get, or now I've got it. Ah, finally, I'm at peace. I've got it. Great. Now I'm there. Uh, you know, if there's a if there's sufficient mindfulness of oh, who is it that's there? <laughs> who is it that's got it, and what is there to get? Uh, it was challenged those eye making and mind making habits. So again, it's it's not just one type. There's, there's more and more subtle levels, but all of that kind of uh, tanha, it's, it's valuable to get to know that, to get to know the feeling of it, the, the, the texture, the tone of it. And then also, again, the, when that has been recognized and let go of, re uh, being aware of what it's like to, to say, work with the mind, or have a conversation, or carry out your, your, your livelihood, um, when it, it's free from tanha, and just the, the oh, this is what it's like, like going for a walk and not having to be obsessed about where you're going, or how many steps you've taken, or <laughs> how, you know, how far, how much further you've got to go, but rather just enjoying the walk, and just getting to know that tone and then trusting that. That's that's. Uh, it's like riding a bicycle or swimming. You can't do it with a formula or a book. You have to get on the bike. You know, get in get in the water. <laughs> you can't learn to swim from a book. You got to get in the water, <laughs> or you can't learn to ride a bicycle from a book or an idea, you've got to actually, it's a whole body learning. And it's similar, I would say, with, with uh, the difference between chanda and tanha, it's a, it's a whole body learning, it's a, it's a body sense, a felt sense. And, and then uh, the more we practice, the more we work with that, then they, uh, the more we recognize the, the beneficial results of knowing that being able to find that. So I think that's enough for today. Four o'clock has come around. Thank you for your good questions and your attention today. <laughs>